Open your Bibles to John chapter 10. Last week I preached in the first half of John chapter 10 and, and I said that, that Jesus is our shepherd. Actually, Jesus said it, I just repeated it. He said that he is the shepherd, that he is the great shepherd. In the Old Testament, in Psalm 23, most know that psalm, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Jesus is our shepherd. He is the one who takes us to still waters, who brings us to calm places. The shepherd is the one who restores our weary and aching heart. A shepherd is the one who will take care of everything. He will minister to us. He will bring us everything we need. A shepherd is not a partner. A shepherd is not someone who, who we enter into a partnership and if they do their part, we'll do our part. A shepherd leads. He is the one who's in control. A shepherd is not a co-pilot. Jesus is not your co-pilot. He's in the driver's seat and you're on the stretcher in the back. A shepherd is one who does everything. A shepherd is someone who takes care of you. A shepherd is the one who you put yourself into his arms and he tells you not to worry about anything because he has everything under control. And he tells you to relax. He tells you to be confident and to trust him. That's what a shepherd is. He is under control. He's a, he has the ability to lead and to guide and to supply and defend. A shepherd is everything to the sheep. I wanna challenge you, everyone in this room this morning, to realize that you have been looking for a shepherd. You've been looking for that shepherd, the kind of shepherd that I just described here. There are a number of people who seek to get married and then when they find the one, they, they think, finally, I have found the one who will take care of me. This is the person who will meet all of my needs. This is the one and so I can just now relax. This person will meet all of my needs. This is the person I've been waiting for. This is the one I can give myself completely to and they can take care of everything. And then to their surprise, they can't do it. They won't live up to it. And yet there's others who, who thought that their parents were supposed to be their shepherds. You think that your parents will take care of you for all of your life, to supply for you, to to mend you when you're hurt, to protect you when you're threatened. And you believe that they're always going to be there, no matter what, giving themselves always for you, and they can't do it. And there are others who, who are now at, a, at peace that their leaders have been voted in. You have the leader that you've always wanted. That this leader's gonna take care of everything. This is the one, this is the guy, or this is the, the party, the group of people who will finally take care of me. This is the group that will protect me and supply for me. They've got my back. This happens in various ways, not just with that leadership party, but it comes in the same way as, as pastors. A pastor is a shepherd, so he must be able to handle all that I give him. I've heard sometimes people share, I just need to talk to him. When he listens to me and he gives counsel, that's all I need. He, he can take care of me. But as pastors, we, we fail. There's some of you who say, yeah, I used to be like that. I, I even have friends like that. They're always looking for someone to take care of them, to, to someone to give them what they need. I'm not like that at all, though. I'm, I'm emotionally mature, they say. I, I've been around for a while, and I can safely say, I've got this. Yeah, you don't got this. 
Because if you have that attitude, that, that if you have this under control, then what you've decided is that you are your own shepherd. And you have understood that no one is qualified to be your shepherd. You're, you're just going to take care of it. And that's ridiculous. You might be less annoying than those of us who are looking for it in other people, but the result is the same. You will be disappointed. No human being can be the shepherd that we need. No one. We will always be restless. You'll always be unhappy. You'll always be looking for more. And everyone is looking for a shepherd. Everyone is looking for their rescue. And Jesus says in our chapter that he is the one. He is the one, the only one that is able to fill that role. Jesus says, it's me. I am the good shepherd that you have been looking for. I am the one that you've been searching for. No married love, no parental love, no child love, no friend love, no professional accomplishment or political party. Nothing can fulfill your life the way that Jesus can. He is the only shepherd. And Jesus says, you only find what you've been looking for in me. This morning, we have the privilege of looking at the last half of John chapter 10. And in it, you will see two ways in which Jesus fulfills our needs. First, the shepherd is our Messiah. He is the promised one who's come to rescue his people. And second, the shepherd is the son of God. He's no mere man, but he was sent from the father to purchase, to, to buy back his bride. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to John 10. You already have probably Look at verses 22 through the end of the chapter and follow with me as I read. Verse 22, at that time, the feast of dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. And so the Jews gathered around him and said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. And Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered, It is not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy. Because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said, you are gods? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said, I'm the Son of God? If I'm not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And many came to him, and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true, and many believed in him there. This is the word of God. Would you join me in prayer? 
Father, we thank you again for the privilege that we have to come together as the body of Christ and to worship you. And Father, we ask this morning that you would give us understanding of your word. The Holy Spirit would teach us this morning, would guide us and lead us. We'd again recognize that you are our great shepherd and that we need you. And as our shepherd, you're a Messiah. As a shepherd, you're a son of God. Father, help us to understand this. Help us to apply this to our life. I pray that we will come away changed this morning as a result of hearing your word. I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. First thing I want you to see in this passage is the shepherd is our Messiah. When we come to verse 22, we read that it was winter in Jerusalem. It was most likely the last week of December during the Feast of Dedication. This was a feast that celebrated the rededication of the temple from about 164 BC after it had been destroyed many years before by Antiochus. And this feast was a, a joyous event. It was just, this is Hanukkah for the Jews. This is what that celebration is. And here we have Jesus walking in the temple through one of the covered court areas called Solomon's Porch. As he is walking, the Jews surround him, and some of which I believe were the same Jewish officials from earlier in chapter 10 and even to John chapter 9, and, and still others beaming with excitement over this festival. And they approach Jesus. Actually, John says they surround him. Maybe in a way they're pressing in and pressuring Jesus. And they ask him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you're the Christ, tell us plainly. I'm sure the crowd didn't ask this of every guy that they saw. Now, they noticed something different, unusual about, about this Jesus. And so they ask him. And the term Christ was the, the Greek equivalent for Messiah. The Messiah was the long-awaited king who would come and reign over Israel, who would defeat their enemies with a rod of iron, who would come and establish an eternal kingdom of peace and righteousness. And Jesus had at this point publicly named himself the Messiah with words, but there was so much evidence of what he had done that it pointed to him as the Messiah. And people had understood the function of the Messiah or the Christ was to be the political and, and the military leader who would overthrow the Roman rule. And in private conversations, though, Jesus did have with his disciples in John chapter 4 and John chapter 6 that he had plainly identified himself as a Messiah, but he had not said this in a public way because of the popular misunderstanding of what the Messiah was coming to do. So Jesus gives his response to their question there in verses 25 through 30. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you're not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. There's something that the Jews are wanting in their question of Jesus. And they may not have known it, but, but really they're wanting protection. Protection and supply. And that only comes through a shepherd. 
Jesus knows this and responds to them, showing again that they do not believe in him. They do not desire to trust or believe him. Believing in Jesus, trusting in Jesus, results in us giving up our autonomy. We have to humble ourselves before God, realizing that we cannot save ourselves. We're unable to do anything to bring us in a right relationship to God. And they refuse to do this. They refuse to believe and trust in Jesus because they don't want that type of shepherd. They can self-govern. Well, there, there are three things here that I want to highlight that Jesus alludes to in these, in these six verses that every person ever born on this planet desires. There's never been a human being that has not wanted these three things. Jesus talks about them. First is eternal life. Second is eternal security. And third is eternal peace. Three things that you desire, three things that you need. Eternal life, eternal security, eternal peace. All three are there wrapped in these six verses. First, eternal life. Everyone knows that this world is passing. Everyone in this world knows this. They know that things are not looking good. And no matter how much they deny it, they know that an end is coming. I mean, every year, right, Hollywood has a new movie about how the world's going to end. Everyone knows this. They know that some end is coming. And they don't want it to come. People don't want to die. They're afraid of death. But as a Christian, as a believer, he frees you from that fear of death. I read a story about the relationship between doctors and their patients in the country of Japan. The interesting thing about it was it said that it was very rare for doctors to ever tell patients in Japan that they had a terminal or a serious disease, and patients didn't want to know. They said it was normal, for example, for Japanese patients in Japan to have cancer and to be never told, and they would never ask. It was normal, for example, the article said, for women to wake up after having an issue, going to the hospital, having surgery, waking up and finding that their breasts are gone because they had breast cancer. And, and they looked down and realized, oh, that's what the issue was. And as Americans, we can't understand that. But what was the most interesting thing that I read in this was an interview with a Japanese doctor who gave a very blunt interview. And he says this, you have to understand we're not a Christian country. We're not a Muslim country. We're not a Jewish country. We don't believe in a personal afterlife. For us, death is the end of personal consciousness. Therefore, it cannot be faced directly. I don't want to talk about death. Many in our own world and our culture in America don't want to talk about death. The Bible is very clear about what happens in our lives. That death comes. As believers, we shouldn't have that view on death because we have eternal life. Meaning that after 80 years of time on earth, we will have millions and millions and millions more in heaven. But for those that are not Christians, and maybe that's you seated here this morning, you're, you're hemmed in by death. I hear people saying all the time, I, I I know this is wrong, but I just want to be happy. I want to live my life and be happy. And you've been fooled by the world. You're, you're living as if these 70 or 80 years that you'll have here is it. And it isn't it. 
And it's very normal, for example, for, for young people when they decide, I'm going to be a career missionary, that their parents, Christian parents, go crazy. And they say, you could have been a professional. You could have made some money and now your life is wasted. You know, the parents in that situation are hemmed in by death. They can't see beyond 80 years. They, they think this is it. It's not it. Maybe the missionaries are the ones who are free and the rest are, are locked in, are trapped in. And maybe just maybe the missionaries are the ones who can live with peace in this world because they know that this life isn't it. It's just a blip on the radar screen of what God has planned for all of eternity. And not just missionaries, we should live that way as believers. Jesus gives us eternal life. And that life begins at the moment of salvation and stretches out through all of eternity. And as believers, you receive this eternal life instantly. Remember John 5, verse 24 Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. When you believe, you have life. You have real life, eternal life. And you pass from death to life. Eternal life doesn't start at your funeral, people. It starts when you are a believer. Eternal life starts at your conversion. It starts in that moment. And this is the life that people want and have been looking for in all the wrong places. And the only way to get this life, the only way to receive eternal life is to release our grip on our own life and trust Christ. And we receive his life, eternal life. And when we do these, things forever change. So our shepherd gives us eternal life, and secondly, our shepherd gives us eternal security. What an incredible truth that Jesus brings to our hearts and minds here in these verses. And not only do we have eternal life, we have eternal security. It says here, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. And given such a clear statement, it's baffling to me that so many believe that a Christian can lose their eternal life. I mean, by its very definition, eternal life cannot be lost. It's everlasting. It lasts forever. Eternal life was a gift given to us. It wasn't earned. This gift cannot be returned. It cannot be revoked. And the, the basis of salvation rests solely in God and not in man. John Calvin writes, Christ is not the guardian of our salvation for just one day or even a few days, but he will take care of our salvation to the end. He will accompany us, as it were, from start to finish of our journey. Jesus says his sheep will never perish a Christian may lose things in this world, money or position or power or comfort or health, and unless Jesus returns first, they'll re lose their mortal lives. But we're, we're never to lose our eternal life. And since Jesus has been raised from the dead and has entered into a, our eternal heavenly reign, there will never be a time where he will not uphold his promise that he's given to us. And in verse 29, Jesus emphasizes it again for us. He says, my father who has given them to me, is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. This is God's preserving grace. And the sheep here listed are in some sort of danger, 
some sort of threat that someone might come in and try to snatch them away. Yet Jesus preaches an absolute security, emphasizing a, a perseverance. It is the power of God that the Father keeps us to. It's as though Jesus knows that we need this encouragement in case we're, we're fearful that we're not secure enough. So not only does Jesus secure us, it's the Father. He wraps his omnipotent hand around us too. And so we're doubly secure, clutched by both the Son of God and the God the Father. So if we place in his hand, we will never be taken out. And if we still feel insecure, realize that when he holds us secure in one hand, he still has one hand free to defend us. And just to be clear here, Jesus is very serious and he's definite in his words. He wants to make sure his listeners understand what he's been saying. He has given us eternal life and we will never perish and no one can snatch them out of his hand or the Father's hand. When Jesus says no one, who's included in this verse? Is it just the people that he's talking about here? Some surprisingly have said this. Jesus must just be talking to the Jews here. I don't agree. So who's included in this no one? Well, the answer is everyone and everything. Time is included since it has no effect on God. Death is included since God is the one who made life and is the giver of life. Sin is included because it's unable to snatch a believer from eternal life. God defeated sin by death of his son on the cross. What about powerful people on earth? Yeah, they can't steal away a believer from God. What about spiritual powers? Maybe Satan, maybe his minions can do this. No, Scripture says that Satan is, to, is also under control of God and he will not do anything that's outside of the will of the Father. And we ourselves are included as no one. All of our foolish and sinful and rebellious actions are not enough to snatch us away from the Father. This is why Paul can confidently say in Romans 8, what then shall we say to these things? Is God for us? Who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. And who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will able to separate us from the love of Christ and Jesus our Lord. Can I get an amen? Whew. Nothing. It's charged me up this week. Can't do anything to take us out of his hand. Did you know that this doctrine, you might not have, the doctrine of eternal security or perseverance in saints, this is what the Lord used to save my favorite preacher, Charles Haddon Spurgeon. Spurgeon was saved at the age of 15 years old, but even before that, when his friends were getting saved, he witnessed the actions of his friends who had begun this Christian life well, but had made a shipwreck of their faith, falling into gross, sinful lifestyles. And Spurgeon was appalled by such things. And he feared that he too might fall into those things. And so he's quoted by saying, whatever good resolutions I make, the probabilities are that they will be good for nothing when temptations assail me. 
I will be like one of those whom it had been said that they see the devil's hook and yet cannot help but nibble at the bait and I will disgrace myself. But then Spurgeon said, when I heard it said that the Lord would keep his people right to the end, I must confess that the doctrine of final perseverance of the saints, it was a bait that my soul could not resist. I thought it was a sort of life insurance, an insurance of my character, an insurance of my soul, an insurance of my eternal destiny. I knew that I could not keep myself, but if Christ promised to keep me, then I should be safe forever. That's what he's promised to us. Praise the Lord that we are eternally secure in Jesus Christ. We do not preach a gospel on a shaky foundation. And do not preach a gospel of probabilities. But on the impenetrable truth that who God saves, he keeps. So God gives us eternal life. He gives us eternal security. And third, and through all this, he gives us eternal peace. And doesn't this passage bring peace to your soul? God is the one who calls us. He is the one who saves us. He is the one who secures us. He is the one who protects us. And we're safe in the mighty hands of our God of the universe. And his hands are not only strong enough to defend us, but his hands are loving. My favorite picture of this is found in the book of Hosea. It is of God, a literal father who cares for Israel, pictured now as as a child learning to walk. And the child could also represent us in spiritual infancy. And God says in Hosea, when Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. It was I who taught, him, taught Ephraim to walk, taking them by the arms, but they did not realize it was I who would heal. I led them with cords of humankind, ties of love. How can I give you up? How can I hand you over? God says that he has been a father to us, teaching us to walk. His hands have held us up while we're learning. He's caught us when we fall down. Moreover, he tells us that this is the proof of his love. He'll not give up on those who are his true children. This brings peace to us as children. Just like when we hold our kids and hold them tight. And holding them, it brings peace. So through our shepherd, we have eternal life, eternal security, and eternal peace, all through Jesus Christ, our Messiah, the great shepherd. The section ends in verse 30 with Jesus saying, I and the Father are one. Now, the word one here has been debated, but the word is, is in the neuter form, not in the masculine. So it's not translated that they're just one in personality. That's not what he means here. It's one in purpose, one in will. They're on the same page of what they're about to do. And the point is that they are unified in protecting the sheep. And Jesus is is all about working in perfect harmony with the Father. We saw it in John chapter 6. He says, and this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of God my Father, that everyone who looks in the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Jesus is the vehicle of divine revelation and salvation. And he's God's agent in the world, not merely just a righteous man or a divine spokesperson. No, he is God in the flesh. He is God's man. 
And what's the response to Jesus' claim? Look at verse 31. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. The crowd, enraged by what they perceive as a blasphemous claim to deity by Jesus, and they pick up stones to try to kill him. This is the fourth time in John's gospel that they have attempted to kill him. And even though Rome had restricted the use of capital punishment to the Jews, this angry lynch mob was going to take care of Jesus all by themselves. This leads into my second and final point this morning. First, we saw the shepherd is our Messiah. Second, the shepherd is the son of God. The chapter concludes with quite a dramatic scene. A man stands in the temple courts, surrounded by violent, angry people, enraged people, now enclosing around him. Their hands, once free, listening to him teach, now hold a stone of which they want to launch at him. You would expect that this guy that was going to be killed would be a rabble rouser, not one who had done so much good for so many people. And you might imagine a person, any normal human being in this moment, start to panic, you know, cowering back, looking for opportunities to run away. But this man does nothing like it. The courage of Jesus Christ is amazing. They're threatening to kill him. And it just isn't a passing attempt. They, they pick up stones. They're showing him the tool in which they want to kill him with. And he doesn't run. Instead, he, he stands up in confrontation to their threats and he challenges their accusations. Look at verse 32. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father for which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered, it's not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. It's astounding to see Jesus work here. And in the midst of all these hot-tempered men and women who are about to, to kill him, he, he calls them to reason with him. He makes them pause and think. I don't know, that's usually not my reaction in those situations. He brings out the law for them to consider. He says in verse 34, Is it not written in your law, I said, you are God's? If you call them God's to whom the word of God came and the scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you're blaspheming because he said, I am the son of God? This is an interesting thing for you to do here, guys, he's saying. Just relax for a moment. Walk with me to see what your own law says. You're all so angry that I'm calling myself God, yet your own scripture, men are called gods. And then he quotes for them in an obscure section, not from the, the law or prophetical books, but from the Psalms. Psalm 82, to be exact. I want you to turn there. I want you to look at it. Psalm 82. Psalm 82 here is a, a psalm of judgment made against the rulers of Israel. Look at verse one. It says, God has taken his place in a divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. God is there and he's not happy. He's going to hold court in the midst of the rulers. These, these rulers were judges. In verse two, how long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? These judges were corrupt. 
They were partial to the wicked. They were always siding with the wicked, turning a blind eye to the righteous. They're corrupt judges. Verse three says, give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. This is what they're supposed to do. This is what God says is what you're supposed to do. Protect the weak and the fatherless. You're to fight for them and to rescue them from their oppression. But that's not what they do. Verse five, they have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. And the society in which it's held together is rattling loose because of lack of justice. There's no justice. In the verse six, he says, you are God's son of the most high, all of you. What does he mean here? Well, first, it's a little G there. Small G, not big G. You are God's. He's saying that you're representatives of the one true God. Second thing is they're, they're God's agent in the world to act. You're the, you're the sons of the most high and he's delegated his authority to you. And this is what he's pointing to again in John chapter 10. He's, if he has called them God to whom the word of God came, then they're the ones charged with the responsibility to teach the scriptures, to uphold the word of God, to defend and to protect. But verse seven in this Psalm says, nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. Seems as though there's some irony here and Jesus using these, this passage, maybe even some sarcasm. He's calling them out in their poor leadership of the people. They've been entrusted with this position of leadership. They're, they're small gods. This is a representative of God. And you might think that you're, 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 you're something, but really you're thinking too highly of yourself, Jesus says. You will, you will die just like men. You will, you will fall like any prince. And then the psalm ends there, verse eight. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. In the Old Testament, Jesus says that the corrupt judges were called gods, little g. Maybe he was being sarcastic. Maybe it's just the use of irony. But he uses that term because they received the word of God. They were chosen to lead, to be agents of God, and they failed. Horrifically, they failed. So if these corrupt men can be called gods, if God himself in scripture has called them gods, do you now say that God the Father who set apart Jesus Christ and sent him to the world, you think that he is blaspheming because he says, I am the son of God? And he challenges them to make the comparison going back. If you come back to, to John chapter 10, look at verse 37. He lays out again the way they should judge who Jesus is. Verse 37, he says, if I'm not doing the works of my father, do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the father is in me and I am in the father. It's an amazing argument. He travels back into the Old Testament to make his case. If the term gods could be applied to the corrupt rulers, it's not a stretch then for the incorruptible, the perfect, the sinless, righteous son of God to be called God. And they need to think through this before they pick up stones and begin to launch them at him. One thing I also need to mention is the high view that Jesus places on scripture here in verse 35. 
He refers to the Old Testament as the word of God. And then he says that scripture cannot be broken. That is, it cannot be refuted or, or set aside. And he bases his whole defense here on one single word from a psalm. And this affirms the authority of every single word in the Bible as being inspired from God himself. He says, Jesus is saying that scripture cannot be changed. Scripture is not wobbly or detached or terminated or avoided. And this passage is Christ's view of scripture that it's, it's a seamless chain and it cannot be broken. It cannot be unattached from itself. And the passage in Psalm 82 has no connection to, to Christ's deity, but he uses the word gods there to make the point from the lesser to the greater. And then in the middle of, of it all, the discussion, he says, right in the middle of the teaching, he says, scripture cannot be broken. His works define who he is and where he came from. He doesn't need to prove his deity with a debate. His works prove who he is and who sent him. And scripture cannot be broken, period. I mentioned this last week, and I'll say it again. You notice in Jesus' interaction with these teachers and how he treats them, he treats the false teachers very severely. He treats them very differently than those that are simply trying to understand and ask questions, but not these men. These men are teachers. If you remember in James chapter three, verse one, it says, of those who are teachers who teach will be judged with greater strictness. So Jesus is gentle with those who are led astray, but sharply confronts those false teachers who are leading others astray. What's the response here through all this? Verse 39. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And many came to him, and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true, and many believed in him there. Jesus withdraws from public ministry, inching closer and closer to the day where he will give his life. And he's challenging them to consider who he says he is and, and the evidence of his works. In other words, Jesus has performed works that could only be ascribed to God. And the Jews need to consider seriously about his claims that he's made. And I ask the same for you that are here seated this morning. If you're not a believer, you too need to consider what Jesus has said and what he's done. Who is Jesus to you? Is he your shepherd? Have you considered his works? Even the works described here in just John's gospel. Who else could turn water into wine? That really happened. Turn water into wine. And who, who else could feed over 5,000 people with just a few loaves and a few fish? Who could give sight to a man born blind? Who could do any of these things? And these are just some of the miracles that are listed in John's gospel. You need to look at the facts here in the Bible and let the facts of, of what Jesus has done compel you to believe in him. 
The gospels proclaim to us that Jesus is the true son of God and the world's only savior. We need to give some thought to this. He is the shepherd that you need in your life. He is the only one who will bring comfort. He's the only one that will bring peace and protection and supply. And for you Christians here this morning, are you looking at other people to be your shepherd? Are you expecting your spouse or your kids to be your shepherd to supply for you what you want and need to give comfort when trouble comes? to bring joy into your life. You'll be disappointed. No human can bear the weight of doing that. No human can do that. You need a shepherd to do that for you. And I want to encourage you to lean on him, to run to him. He will provide goodness and mercy, as Psalm 23 says. And when we follow him, he'll, he'll prepare a table for us. And he'll anoint our head with oil and, and allow our cup to be over, overfilled. He is our great shepherd. Follow that shepherd. Let's pray. Father, I thank you again for this morning. I thank you for the privilege we have to come and to worship together. We thank you for your word that guides us and leads us. We thank you, God, that you are our shepherd, our great, mighty shepherd who loves us, who cares for us. I pray for those that are seated here this morning that are, they're not saved. They're not believers. They're not following after you. And they know they need a shepherd. I pray that you would save them you give them faith to believe. Father, I thank you that when you save us, you give us eternal life and that we'll never perish and we're eternally secure. No one can snatch us out of your hand. We are yours and you love us and you care for us and through that all we have peace. Father, help us to, to be billboards of the gospel, to, to share it with others. May we be bold this week. And now to him who's able to keep you from stumbling and present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen.